there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. We're going to talk about what's beyond life. Now, everybody thinks about, oh, we're going to talk about life after death. Oh, that's wonderful. I have always wanted to know what happens and yada, yada, yada. But it's a different approach. I'm taking a different approach this time than that. You know, there's nothing like a near-death experience to open your eyes to something beyond life. Lacking that extreme, there are other ways to have one's eyes opened to what's beyond life. For example, if you've ever been in an accident where time seemed to slow down or stand still, you've had an eye-opening moment. Or it can also happen with a severe illness. If you've ever had some really severe illness where you thought you were going to die or you were just so sick that you were out of it. Out of it means you were out of life. You got beyond life in some way. So this is really what I'm talking about. Now, these things have a common denominator. We're stopped from identifying with external events through the senses. That's the common denominator. In all these three things, we are stopped from identifying with the external events through the senses. It doesn't mean we stop. It means we are stopped. There's a big difference. If you could stop identifying with external events through the senses, you wouldn't need near-death experiences or accidents or severe illnesses. But the truth is, is you can't do that. And there's a reason for that, because it takes a tremendous amount of effort to learn how to do that. And unfortunately, we are not accustomed to making effort, at least not effort like that. We're kind of more like, I read something the other day that just cracked me up. It was like, and it was serious too. How little can I do and still be a Christian? And I thought, God, that's perfect. That is exactly how we approach everything. What is the least amount that I can do and still get the best grade? It's just exactly what I was saying in the light podcast about having everything turned upside down so that we're looking at it all backwards some other way than the way we should actually be looking at it. It's really bizarre when you think about it, how we do that. But nonetheless, we do it. Morris Nichols said, Spirit is withdrawn from participation in the evidence of the inflow of the senses. Talk about saying things in a weird way. This is what I just said, though. We're stopped from identifying with external events through the senses. He said, spirit is withdrawn from participation in the evidence of the inflow of the senses. The senses are like these five windows, and they're open. And stuff is flowing in through these five windows, or five doors, or five porches, or five holes in the wall. However you want to see it. I don't care how you see it. Just as long as you see it. Understand it in any terms that you can understand it in, but understand it. And if you truly understand it, then you'll be able to see it in any of the terms that I've just mentioned and probably more. The goal here is for you to create in yourself the force of understanding so that you can apply that understanding to this idea and you can see it in a lot of different ways from a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different angles, which is evidence that you do indeed understand. Now, evidence that you don't understand is the ability to parrot what you've heard. That is evidence, from my perspective, that you do not understand. It's just parroting. It's fallen on the intellectual center. It got stuck there, and it just stayed there, and it never went anywhere else. So you can just parrot it, and you'll hear yourself 
If you listen to yourself, if you ever hear yourself talk, and I don't know whether you do or not, but if you ever hear yourself talking, every once in a while, this is a form of separation. Every once in a while, we become aware of ourselves talking, and we realize that we're nuts, that what we're saying is meaningless dribble, and we should just shut up. This is called mechanical talking or parroting. And unfortunately, if our mouths are moving, that's generally what we're doing. We have very few moments of actually saying anything. But we have a lot of moments of mechanical talking where we're just talking. But every once in a while, we hear it. We actually are separated from it enough to be able to hear it as if it were someone else saying it. And it's like, oh, shut up. Or you say something, you go, oh, what an idiot. That's idiotic. I think it happened to me the other day. It was yesterday, wasn't it? I was talking about something and the government or something. Oh, yes. Get into something and I said, that's just, you know, it's just rambling or ranting or drivel. And it was exactly that. I mean, all of a sudden I realized, you know, look, this has nothing to do with anything. Shut up. And we need to do that a lot more often. Unfortunately, we're going to continue to need to do that a lot more often for a long time to come at our current rate. So anyway, Morris Nichols says, the spirit is withdrawn from participation of the evidence of the inflow of the senses. So here's all this stuff coming in through the senses, pouring in through these five openings. And the spirit is withdrawn from participation in the evidence of what's coming in. Because you see, what's coming in is evidence. It is evidence that this world that is oozing in through these five holes, it's evidence that it exists. It's evidence that it's real. But when the spirit is withdrawn from participation in the evidence of what's oozing in, it's no longer evidence. It's only evidence when the spirit is giving it its force and its meaning. But withdraw that and it's just sensations. So in your Vipassana meditation, which of course may be a couple of you who still know what it actually is, the rest of you have become so convoluted in it that you no longer understand what it is anymore. And if you went back to a course like you were supposed to do every year, if you went back to a course and redid it, you would understand how far you have gotten off track, just how far away you actually are from the original teaching of Vipassana. It's a very difficult thing to stay on track. Why? Well, because we live in imaginary eye. We imagine everything. We sit down to meditate. We're not meditating at all. We're thinkitating or we're sleepitating. It's something else like that. We're not meditating at all. But we don't know that. Why? Because we no longer have anything to compare it to. Our comparison, our gold standard is now so far away from us that we can no longer see it. It's no longer fresh for us. So that's why they recommend go back every year and take a 10-day course. Because in a year, even if you're meditating two or three hours a day, in a year, you're going to be off course again. And the reason you're going to be off course again is because it is our nature to go off course. In the same way that if you were to take a walk in the desert with nothing around, just sand, you would find that you walked in one huge circle because one leg is stronger than the other leg and you would not walk a straight line no matter how much you thought you were walking a straight line without anything to determine whether or not you were actually walking a straight line you couldn't readjust your course so that you actually walked a straight line but if you were walking somewhere where you had something you were walking toward you could constantly readjust your course if you closed your eyes for five minutes and walked you would find that you were off course well when you don't have anything as a point to go to or to navigate by, you're going to get off course. So this is why they say go back every year, because you're going to get off course. Now, of course, you don't agree with me. You think, oh, yes, in the desert, that's true, but not with Vipassana. I know that I'm doing it right. It's like, okay, then carry on. 
one of the things I have learned is that it doesn't do any good to talk to people. You tell them, they either get it or they don't. If they don't get it, there's no sense in repeating it. They either get it or they don't. And mostly, they don't. Interestingly enough, we'll be talking about this a little bit. So what happens is, in this near-death experience or this uh, accident or this extreme illness or whatever it is that temporarily pulls us out of identifying with the external events that are coming at us through the senses, we feel we're temporarily different from the external world. See, right now, we don't feel different from the external world. We feel ourselves by the external world. How you know you're here is because of the external world. That is what's telling you you exist. It's the hypnotism of life and the flow of life events that are telling us we exist. You can feel your butt in that chair. You can feel the temperature of the room. You can hear the sounds. You can see the light. All of this stuff tells you that you exist. This is us being in life. Now, the near-death experience or the accident or the severe illness is when we feel temporarily different from the external world. Suddenly, we're out of life. Suddenly, we see life as this thing over here and us as this other thing outside of life or beyond life. This is a rare experience. And what we see is that the hypnotism of life, the flow of life, events, is draining our force. It is actually bleeding us. So as we sit here right now in life, we are being bled by life. We are being drained by life. Our force is being taken by life. All this shows us there is something beyond life, a different way of being related to people, a different way of being related to things, a different way of being related to events. I know a person who had a near-death experience, and he was of the opinion that everything was different, that he was being pulled out of life, pulled above life, as it were, and he could see everyone and everything from a different perspective, from above it. He was out of his body and away from all the things and the people and the events that were going on. And it's like he was just looking at this, all these people rushing around doing this stuff in an emergency room. And he was just like watching that. Wow, look at that. I know that body lying on that table. So that's what I mean by a different way of being related to people, things, and events. The sad part is these extraordinary states of consciousness pass, and we fall back down into our ordinary, miserable states of being offended, rushing around, getting this and getting that, and needing this and needing that, and paying bills and getting food, and blah, 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 and finally bickering with others. Let's not leave that out because, let's face it, how much of our life is about bickering with other people? Interesting, I was watching someone went on a trip, a cruise to Mexico. Two couples went on this cruise. And one couple called the other couple the Bickersons. And for a moment, the woman in that pair, she said, oh, my God, that's so true. It's all we ever do is bicker. But you see, it's like it took someone else. And that's like a near-death experience. You see, that's like an accident or severe illness. You get a glimpse of what you're actually like. You know, you get a glimpse of what you're actually doing. Someone calls us the Bickersons. I mean, I just thought that was so funny, but it's a perfect example of what we're doing. Now, the question becomes how to get back to those states without nearly dying or getting in accidents or getting seriously ill or using drugs that bring all those things about. So we do alcohol, we do drugs, or we do whatever it is, and then we get in accidents or we have near-death experiences or we get really sick. The reality stuff is really big these days. You know, everybody wants to know all about reality. They never want to know about their own reality, I've noticed. They only want to know about somebody else's reality, which in my opinion is just more story, more entertainment, more the real housewives of almost every city in America. You know, it's like, who cares?
cares? Well, millions of people seem to care. Why? Because it's easier to watch the Bickersons than it is to see that you are the Bickersons. It's easier to see other people having a real crummy life than it is to see your own real crummy life. And this is what the work says we're doing all the time, projecting. We're always projecting. You're seeing what you're doing on other people. No, not me. I'm working. This is real. What I see is real. They really are doing this. They really are idiots. Yes, but what you've missed is you really are too. No, I'm sure I've risen above that. Okay. The work says you haven't. Well, what does the work know? The work doesn't know me. Well, that's true. And you've never let the work inside of you. So the work doesn't know you. So you have spoken the truth there. You would actually have to make a place inside of you for the work to come into you so that it could know you. And then when it knew you, you wouldn't like it. You would no longer like the work and you would want it out of you. It would be like, let's get rid of this because this isn't good. Because this work doesn't know me. I mean, that's not me. This thing that this work is showing me, that's horrible. That's not me. No, that's you. That's what you've acquired. That is your imaginary eye. That is you. No, that can't be. It's too horrible. There's no way out. Who then can be saved? So anyway, I don't want to labor this point because I know how annoying it gets. So the answer to this question of how to, how to get back to those states without all that other stuff is unpleasant. The answer is not one you're going to like because it demands effort of an extraordinary kind that we, as lazy machines, are highly resistant to making. Why should we... Look at ourselves when we can watch the real housewives of Hoboken, New Jersey, or the real housewives of Paris, France. You know, who cares? Well, we care because at least it's something we can look at besides ourselves. Because the picture that the work shows us is so horrible that it's almost impossible to reconcile it with what we see ourselves to be. And this is why it takes so long. Because there are two sides or levels of man, there are two schools that we must attend if we are to become whole, to fulfill our potential, to reach our maximum, what we could actually be. We must first learn to reasonably adapt to life on this planet with all of its difficulties. What does that mean? It means we must learn to eat with utensils. We must learn to share with other people. We must learn to chew with our mouth closed. We must learn not to do crude things in public. You know, I mean, we have to learn all these things. And we start to learn these things as small children. And we learn these things from the other sleeping machines around us. We learn that it's not a good idea to touch things in other people's homes. And how we learn that is, don't touch anyone. When we go in there, don't touch anything. You, know? <laughs> you learn it first with your grandmothers or your aunts or uncles or whatever. But you learn it. You learn not to touch things in other people's homes. You learn that there are boundaries. And so we learn all these things. This is basically our first education. And the work calls this formation of a good and hopefully rich personality through our first education or first school, in a sense. The world becomes our first school. Without this, one will be greatly hindered in proper self-development. If this doesn't happen, see, if you take somebody who is raised by wolves and you bring them into society, you know, you bring them into this room and you sit them down in that chair there, first of all, they're not going to want to sit in that chair. They were raised by wolves, and wolves don't sit in chairs. They're going to want to sit over there, scratching the fleas or doing whatever they do, 
or they're going to be looking for food, or they're going to be looking for a safe place, or they're going to be looking for a mate, or they're going to be looking for whatever wolves are looking for. They're not going to be comfortable in this room because they have not had that first education. They've not been to that first school. Their first education was they were raised by wolves. Now, you remember there was actually someone who was raised by wolves. Some boy was raised by wolves and then brought into society, and it was like a big deal. Like, oh my gosh, you know, and he, his hair was in his nail and his, everything was long and, you know, he thought he was a wolf, essentially. And he acted like one. That's not the formation of a good and hopefully rich personality. It's the formation of a personality, but it's the personality of a wolf. And the personality of a wolf is not the same personality as a human being. So that person is going to have a tremendously difficult time in this room with this work, with what's going on here. In other words, that person's not going to understand any of it at the intellectual level. Now, they may understand at a visceral level. They might understand at a moving center level, at an emotional level, a level that we cannot understand. They may be able to pick things up. But they will never understand the way you understand. So it's necessary to have this first education, this adaptation to life, as it were, and to the events in life and the possibilities in life and the problems that this life gives us. Or else, like I said, one will be greatly hindered in proper self-development. The first school is like a prep school for the main event. Our real purpose is the main event as self-developing organisms. We're supposed to find out what's real. As Jess brought up this morning, everything is false personality. Now find out what isn't. Well, what isn't is what's real. What isn't false personality is what's real. Well, is it real personality? Possibly. That's something you need to find out. Is there such a thing as real personality? Yes. There is such a thing as real personality, but that's something you need to find out. It's not something you need to hear me tell you about. It says, everything is false personality. Now listen and let me tell you what isn't. It's find out what isn't. Now find out what isn't. You yourself find out what isn't. Now, the second school or the second education is needed to develop the possibilities that are latent in us. This work represents the second school or the second education. Does that mean that this work is the second school or the second education? No, it represents it. That's what that means. This work is not a school, but a school could be pressed out of this work. Not all enter the work at the same level. That's another thing we fail to realize. Not everybody comes into this at the same level. The personality we acquire through contact with the first school, with the first education, with life, can be built up through contact with the work. In other words, it's possible for someone to come in with a much richer personality and someone to come in with a much poorer personality. Now, the person with a much poorer personality, the person who has not adapted well to life, who is a lame good householder, you know, who's lost a leg or an arm and a leg or all of his teeth or whatever. And, of course, this is all figurative, metaphorically, I'm speaking. I'm not speaking about literally. That has nothing whatever to do with anything. But if he's crippled in some way, in other words, his personality hasn't been fully developed, he can't get along with people. He can't keep a job. He can't or she can't have relationships with other women. All of her relationships with other women are always bickering and hard and she's always seeing her mother or she's always seeing her worst enemy and everything is just always at odds. That's not a rich personality. Someone can get into the work with something like that. You can get into the work like that. But you're going to be a nuisance. You're really going to be a nuisance in the work and you're going to be a nuisance to yourself. But it is possible through contact with this work to develop a better personality. It is possible to do that. So we can actually get people in here and train them to be better householders, which of course we have done. But that's not enough. And if that's the only reason you're in the work, you'll get to be a better householder. That'll be it for you. That will be the work for you. 
The work will be all about personality. It won't be about this latent possibility that you have inside of yourself. Now, some enter the second education still wearing many of the clothes of the tramp and the lunatic. They can be, like I said, colossal pain in the neck in this work. I'm going to use as an example some scripture. Uh, it's, anyway, it's Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, and it's a good parable. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Now, when you hear that, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, you have to understand that this is not meant literally. You cannot take it literally. If you take it literally, you will miss everything about it, all the meaning of it. So, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, you know the kingdom of heaven is this place, this expanding state of consciousness that we're trying to move into. This place where when you get into this higher state, as I said, like through a near-death experience or through an accident or severe illness, the spirit is withdrawn from participation in the evidence of the inflow of the senses. In other words, we're stopped from identifying from external events through the senses. You're actually in this other place, the kingdom of heaven. So... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. So he told his servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him out in the outer darkness, the place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You have heard this parable before. And you know that people have taken that literally. And they do all kinds of crazy things to each other because they take that literally. And they make up all kinds of crazy stories behind that of what's going to happen to you if you don't do this and if you don't do that. And it's used basically for one reason, one reason only. And that's to control people. But that's neither here nor there. It can take a long time for us to realize the nature of the second school. We get bogged down in taking it the same way we took the first school. But new tools are needed for this second education. So you see... We come into the work, but we're still dressed in the garments, the clothes that they found us on the highways in. We're still dressed in that. We didn't change our clothes. We didn't get rid of the things that we needed to get rid of in order to get into the work in a proper way. So a lot of people come into the work dressed not in wedding garments. They're not ready for this union. They're not ready to unify themselves, to marry the work. They're not ready to take the work as their husband. Really, that's what this is about. This is about taking the work as your husband and submitting to your husband. That's what this is about. Now, in this country, we don't even want to talk about that. That's just insanity now. You know, it's like, well, we're not doing that. We have rights and blah, blah, blah. And that's, of course, the false personality. But we're not talking about husbands and wives. This is metaphorical. We're talking about this work and you submitting to it and obeying something higher than your false personality, than acquired conscience. We're talking about uncovering buried conscience, real conscience, and obeying that. It's more about 
living and practicing in yourself what the work teaches. Remember yourself. Observe yourself. Stop identifying. Stop negative emotions. All of this stuff. This is what this work is about. This is what this wedding feast is about. This is what we need to be prepared for. We need to be prepared to do this. Living and practicing in yourself what the work teaches. And it's very simple what the work teaches. Remember yourself. Observe yourself. Stop identifying. Stop negative emotions. All of those things. Being such arrogant dolts, the work teaching must be shown to us constantly through spaced repetition, reminding us of what the second education requires of us. Why we do this is because we do. But again, I'd like to go back to some esoteric writings. This one is James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. It says, This you know, my brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Man, if this is not the work in code, then, you know, it's like what happens is that religious people get so freaked out about this. They think they've got it. But how many religious people are doing the work? Okay, now you have people in the work who are, oh, we're above that, we're beyond that, that religious superstitious stuff, and those people, and they, they, they. And how many of those people are doing the work? Well, I can promise you, if they're pointing the finger at religious people and what they're not doing, they're not doing the work. And I can promise you that the religious people are pointing their finger at the people who are in the work and saying, well, they're not doing it because they don't believe this, and they don't believe that, and they don't do what we do, and they don't go where we go. Then I can promise you they're not being Christians. This work is esoteric Christianity. Sorry. I'm really sorry about that. But that's not what I said. This is not what I made up. This is not James Parkinson saying, this work is esoteric Christianity. This is the person who brought this work into manifestation. Gurdjieff said that. Said that very clearly. If you could hear it, if you could understand it. If you can't understand it, he didn't press the point. He didn't press the point because he knows that there are people who have an aversion to religion. Whatever their problem is, they have an aversion to it. And so it hinders them. Unfortunately, I'm not hindered by it. I don't care. I don't care where it comes from. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. And after a while, you just don't care where it comes from. All you care is that you find a way to manifest it in your own life. Not worry about, are other people doing it? You start to concern yourself only with this. Am I doing it? Am I a doer of the word? For if I look, if I just hear it and I don't do it, I'm, then I'm just like somebody who looks at my natural face in the mirror. And then when I look, I go away and I forget what kind of a person I was. Do you ever do that? Of course. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I think this is incredibly important for us. This is exactly what this work teaches, exactly. Being such arrogant, stupid, forgetful, slow to apprehend dolts, dullards, we constantly have to be reminded of what this work teaches. And you know, the people who fall away are the ones, oh, I've heard it all. I've heard all the podcasts. I, don't, I know it all already. You're never going to do the work. 
You're never going to do it. I promise you, you're never going to do it. Any more than you're still doing Vipassana if you haven't been once a year. You're not doing it. I don't care what you tell me. The only way that you can be convinced that you are no longer doing it is to go and redo it. But you're not going to do that because you are not going to inconvenience yourself because you are not going to leave your comfort zone because you have become an arrogant dolt. I told you you weren't going to like this. <laughs> Personality adapts you to life. If it's so lacking that you can't earn enough to share with others, how can you love your neighbor as yourself? This work leads to conscious love. Goodness. That's the purpose of this work. It is to lead you to conscious love, which is the manifestation of goodness through your will, not through your emotions. Oh, I feel like doing something nice for somebody. That's not goodness. That's stupid. Oh, I think it's a good thing to do. That's not goodness. That's arrogance. It is using your will to do what is good. Well, how do I know what's good? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> and all that tells you is that you're not interested in doing it. Now you want to qualify who you get to love. That's not it, people. That's not willing goodness. That's not conscious love. That's not this work. Not being able to make our way through this external phenomena is no starting point for further development. If you can't do these simple things, how can you do the more difficult things that the work requires of you? Okay, if you can't stop expressing negative emotions, how are you going to love your neighbors yourself? If you can't earn enough to share with other people, to take care of other people, how are you going to do the more that this work requires of you? How are you going to fulfill your destiny, your further self-development? Through self-observation, we begin to see these huge gaps in our personalities acquired in the first school. Look, it just didn't hit everything. Some people come through this, they barely skin through, they barely graduate or they don't graduate. They're still in the first school. They're still trying to learn those simple lessons. They're still trying to learn how to stop expressing negative emotions. They're still trying to learn how to not be obstreperous people, full of requirements, full of buffers, so that they can't see anything about themselves. All they can see is what's wrong with other people. How are we going to do anything more if we can't even get that done? We see people live in a small, underdeveloped personality, like living in the dungeon of a castle. All this is a result of impression starvation. And this is our condition. To do this work, we must think about the ideas, study the whole and all of its parts. Above all, we must try to practice it. There are lots of people who think about the work ideas and who study the whole and its parts, but they don't practice it. They just go and teach it to somebody else. And of course, their teaching is pretty much worthless because there's nothing behind it. There's no power behind it. They have a form of the work, but it lacks the power. And then you come across someone who's got the power, and it's like, wow, what's up with this? At each moment, you're either in the work or out of it. Don't come and tell me, I'm working. When are you working? Are you working right now? Because it sounds to me like you're boasting. So you're either in the work right now or you're not in the work right now. And what that means is you're either working right now or you're not working right now. That's what it means to be in the work or not in the work. It's not something like, oh, I'm in a work group. I don't care. Most of the people in work groups are not working most of the time. Ask them. If you can find an honest one, they'll tell you. And it is possible to find somebody who's sincere enough to tell you the truth. Life is a series of difficult events, combustible situations that we have to learn to manage before they burst into flames and spread. Look, you have learned through your first education that you can't go out there and just punch anybody in the face who takes your shopping cart or pulls out in front of you. You just can't ram your car into anybody who gets in your way. You can't do it. The people who do that go to jail. You have learned that you don't want to go to jail, and so you don't do that. So that is one way of seeing the combustible situations. 
that we have to learn to manage before they burst into flames. Because there's some people that just burst into flames. They run right into the car. <laughs> called road rage. They go to jail. And they go to anger management. And they do this. And they do that. And if they don't get it straight, then they keep them in jail or they put them on drugs, which is the same thing. They put them in a mental prison of drugs. Anyway, the bottom line is they're not going to put up with it. Okay, let's say you've got that done. You've got that much of the first education. But you come into the work and you don't have the road rage thing going where you actually run into cars anymore. But now you just scream at the people and gesture and you do all that stuff. And you rage and you cuss and you swear and you drive like a maniac. But you don't actually run into the other car and run them off the road. Well, congratulations. You've made it that far. But that's just the beginning. Don't pat yourself on the back too hard. Whatever the situation, remember yourself why you're here. Remember your meaning, your place in the great ray of creation, your purpose, your aim. You see, the thing is, is like 99% of the problems that you have with people are handled with one simple thing, one thing, humility. If you were able to see what you are actually like, you would not be talking to me about other people. You would not be judging them. You would not be raging against them. You would not be lifting yourself up over them. You would know that you were worse than them. That anything that you saw in them, you have more in you. If you could see yourself in the great ray of creation. If you could see where you actually are. If you identify with one of these combustible situations, you'll be negative. Negative emotion is pouring gas on the situation. It will blaze out of control so quickly that you won't believe it. This second school teaches us that we're responsible for not letting things catch fire. If you're negative, it's nobody's fault but your own. But as many times as you've heard that, and you've heard it for years, you still get negative and you still tell me it's someone else's fault. You still point the finger at someone else every time you're negative. This we do not know or understand now. We don't understand that we're responsible for not letting things catch fire. The proof is the gas can that you have in one hand and the matches that you carry in the other hand everywhere you go. You are looking for a reason to set a fire. You are looking for a spark that you can pour the gas on. You're sniffing around for gas so that you can throw a match at it. Now, you may see this about yourself or you may not. That's up to you. That's your business. This is not my business. My business is to tell you the truth, and this is the truth about us. This is what the work teaches. Our work is to allow the creation in us of another reality, stronger than and beyond the reality of this external life. There is something beyond this life, and our job in this work, and the work's job in us, is to get us beyond life. The question is, are you willing? And if you are, then you need to do what this work says to do. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.